Welcome to the Linnaean Society of London. If you know the extension of the... Please wait a moment. Draw a circle round it three times with a sword. While you were doing that, your assistant had to dance in a circle, reciting a magic formula. And at the moment that you actually dug the plant up, you had to be facing west. Mandrake hallucination, excitability, nervousness. Mandrake. For mandrake. Sexual effects. In the mandrake. Consuming a certain amount of mandrake root, including mandrake. So highly psychoactive. If you go back in time and you go back to, say, the Middle Ages, people used to compile books known as herbologies. Now, a herbology is effectively a plant encyclopedia. And in the period that we're talking about, you know, several hundred years ago, those books were actually copied out by hand and illustrated by hand. And knowledge was actually handed down from generation to generation through a, a system of people with copy books. And then in order to reproduce those books, they would be circulated they would read them, they would annotate them, and in the process, they'd often learn more about the plants in question. And what's rather interesting is that as people were drawing and writing about those plants, they often embellished what they're writing with, like sometimes myths became associated with particular plants. My name is Julian Harrison, and I'm a medieval manuscripts curator at the British Library in London. And the plant I want to talk about today is the mandrake. Their roots were believed to resemble a kind of tiny human. Now this meant that when you pull them out of the ground, you're actually pulling out a little creature, little human creature out of the ground. And that created a whole kind of strange phenomenon whereby people thought that uh, if you pulled a mandrake out of the ground, it would scream. It would scream. And that scream would actually drive you insane. So the irony is that the plant was used to cure insanity, but actually harvesting it would actually make you insane. And as a consequence, people devised this rather elaborate, you could say really bizarre method of cultivating, harvesting mandrakes. And there's a particularly good representation. It's found in a 15th century medieval manuscript comes from probably from sort of Italy, possibly southern Germany. And in that particular manuscript, it shows a man pulling a mandrake out of the ground. But before he does that, he has to take several precautions. Now, the first thing that he does, he has to stuff his ears with earth. You stuff your ears with earth, so you, you block out the sound of it being pulled out of the ground. Secondly, how do you pull your mandrake out of the ground? Do you put it with your hand? No, of course not. You actually use a dog. How do you use a dog? Well, you tie a rope round the dog and you tie the other end of the rope round the mandrake. And then uh, you blow a horn. You blow a hunting horn. The noise you're creating at the same time is actually drowning out the sound of a mandrake screaming as it's pulled out of the ground. The dog bolts and it yanks the mandrake out of the ground simultaneously. And that's how medieval herbologists were actually encouraged to cultivate, to harvest the mandrakes. 
mandrakes are traditionally used to curse somebody and give them all sorts of trouble and illness and bad luck. Um, or they can be used in a much more pleasant way to, to heal people. I'm Val Thomas. I'm a herbalist, but I also have a very keen interest on traditional and magical uses of plants. You can just carry a small piece of mandrake as a good luck charm. That's very commonly done. There's a tradition in France in particular that if you keep mandrake with you, it will bring you wealth. And in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, uh, it's said that you can use mandrake to free someone from possession by a demon because they're associated with aphrodisiacs and love and sex, they can also be carried by a woman who wishes to conceive a child. There's a really, really macabre feature of the illustration of a mandrake itself. And atop its um its buds, its leaves, are two severed hands, two severed human hands, effectively like flowers, sprouting from the, the, the stems, from the leaves of the plant. Uh, and why would that be? Well, actually, that was because at that particular time, mandrakes were used as an anaesthetic during amputations. And the illustrator is denoting that and he's making it obvious to the reader that one use of this plant, you can use it as an anaesthetic. It's quite brutal, but it's obviously quite realistic as well. In the past, people didn't make such a very strong distinction as they do now between um, physical and scientific uses of, of plants and the magical uses. So the two things really go very well together um, in, in the ancient herbals. In the Middle Ages and earlier, people were really closely connected with the natural world. They really knew what they were doing and often some of the discoveries they made and some of the remedies they used were actually far superior to what we have today. One example that at the British Library there's a, a 10th century old English manuscript which is called Bord's Leech Book. Um, it's named after a former owner who had the name Bord. Uh, that particular manuscript, fairly recently uh, a scientific team analysed one of its remedies and found that amazingly it could be used to uh, combat the MRSA bacterium. You know, modern, modern science hadn't found a way of, or, or found it difficult to combat that particular bacterium, but in an Anglo-Saxon manuscript, uh, they had a recipe which did exactly that. I would take I would traditional, traditional medicine, medicine as something that, something is, that is traditionally used and it's often, say, herbal, sometimes it's fungi, sometimes it could be animals, but let's say it's, it is going back in time.
we are definitely losing some of those traditional uses of plants because we've got other alternatives, especially for, for medicines. I'm Monique Simmons, uh, working at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew. Ethnobiology is really the traditional uses of plants by um, communities, be they British communities, be they Africa or Asia. I think it's always interesting to look at, you know, listen to what's often terms of old wives' tales or some of those traditional stories or traditional nursery rhymes and things like that. And then you tease it apart. So, you know, something that could be used for a cough and a cold. When I take it to the laboratory, I'd be very interested to see if it's got something that possibly has antiviral activity. I think because elder trees are so important medicinally, um, lots of stories have, have sprung up around them, one of which is that every elder tree has its own spirit. Some people say that, uh, that these are actually the spirits of witches that live in the trees. And for that reason, it's thought to be very bad luck to cut one down. The tree itself is found almost throughout the UK and it has been described as a complete medicine chest. So in early spring, uh, you get the newly opened buds. In fact, it's one of the first trees in the UK to come into leaf. And these, these opening buds can be picked to make a beautiful green infused oil, which is really lovely for the skin. Then, of course, you know, about June, the creamy white flowers start to appear. These flowers have antiviral properties, so they can be used for colds, uh, particularly good for summer colds, and they also help to reduce catarrh. Back in the 1990s, a herbalist asked us if we were interested in wound healing plants, and we said yes, and really in introduced me to Galium. She was having some really, real positive responses of patients to bad leg ulcers, and was really intrigued why it was that the plant was active for some of the time in springtime, but not really later on in the year. That little bit, actually, she didn't tell us right away. So we got some plant material, we got it from Kew. We worked with some scientists at King's College to help us with the wound healing bit. We did the chemistry at Kew and um, we couldn't find anything. So we kind of dismissed it as, well, you know, an old wife's tale. And I actually went and visited two patients that she was treating. You know, I could see that it was definitely having some activity. So one thing I learned is that she was using the material fresh. We do been using quite material. And when she was preparing it, she said, well, I can only use this for the next month or two. Otherwise, I will have to be used something else. And I said, why? I said, well, it's no longer active later on in the air. So what we did in that particular um, occasion, we went back, we got some liquid nitrogen. And why we did that is the fact that we could collect it fresh. We could freeze it, which would stop the enzymes that were most likely in the plant that would deactivate the, the compounds there. That enabled us then to bring it back to the laboratory and do some further work. And as a result of that, we were able to identify some of the compounds in there associated with wound healing activity.
as we have become more urbanized, our links with nature have decreased and therefore sometimes the value and the importance of our plants. We've lost that, 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 that primary knowledge about their importance at times. That's why I think it could be lost and I think that's why ethnobotanists and others have a role in helping to document it because we really don't know when we might need it.